What a privilege, you know, whenever someone gives me an introduction like that, the um, expectations are rather high. But I do promise uh, in these moments ahead, one thing I will do is to open God's Word and exposit it to the best of my abilities accurately. And I want to give you a picture of this evening of Jesus Christ. Uh, The first lesson is entitled, Look to Christ in the Church. What a wonderful theme that we have. We are called to look to Christ so that we might live properly in the church. And uh, God's church, this place, this body where we come together, that we can grow with one another, where we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds, this is God's church. Uh, the gathering of his people, uh, God's church, a family, uh, a family unit that is like none other. But if we're to do it properly, if we're to live properly in the church, we must first have the right motivation. So pray with me as we go to God's word in these moments ahead. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you've given us the church We are part of the church, a church um, birthed by your life, your death, your resurrection. Help me in these moments ahead, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Look to Christ in the church. And as I was interacting um, with dear Dr. Swartz and pastor and leader, uh, he had an idea, which was obviously this theme about the church, which is this pillar and foundation of truth. And one thing that he said to me was, we do want to talk about the church, but not in a way that is going to chastise the church. Uh, perhaps there are times when that's necessary. We look at the church and we see that in many ways it is astray in some measure. Uh, we There's been a great deal of talk recently about what is happening in the evangelical church and how that's even defined. And perhaps we should come together and make sure that we are uh, steering ourselves correctly, that we're not going astray. And he said he didn't want that, um, but something that would just give us a great picture. And my text is rather easy to help us do that. I said, well, how about this thought, Um, Colossians 3 and um, that's a, there's a lot to talk about here. But then perhaps one to four, here is Christ in the church. And then five to 17, how do we just live in the church? And he, saw, and he said to me, great, that's it. We have it. It was a rather easy conversation. And it was over with. And that's, is my, that's my objective tonight and even tomorrow to have you look at those two ideas, look to Christ in the church but also how do we live for Christ in the church? Why look to Christ? Well, we look to Christ because he is the ultimate motivation. Why look to Christ? Because it is on his life and death and resurrection that the church is built. Well, why look to Christ? Because all of us need proper motivation. If if we don't have the proper motivation, we may not excel as much as we should. We may not run as hard as we should. We may not fight this spiritual fight as much as we should if we're not properly motivated. 
all of us agree that in some measure, motivation plays a tremendous role in our lives. As a matter of fact, at the Master Seminary, I was just meeting with some of the men in my fellowship group this very early on Thursday morning, and to all of our sort of amazement, there we were nine weeks down um, with only six to go. When did that happen? And those students are motivated to get through their training because they realize that they need the best training possible so that they can be the best leader possible in the local church. So those sleepless nights at times that come, I remember some of those sleepless nights. I remember taking in a, a good doses of caffeine so that I could stay up until two or three or four or maybe not even go to bed sometimes because I was motivated to be trained properly so that I could properly represent Christ's church to Christ's people. Motivation. It's necessary in life. And I want to convince you that you are called to a privileged walk. And not just convince you of this privileged walk, but to motivate you to walk accordingly. That is, how can we set aside our past and look forward to our future? How do we look to Christ and say, I want to strive for him and to be like him. I want to emulate him so that my life can be a light to those around me and we can fulfill the great commission by Christ, which is to make disciples. I'm convinced as we look at many portions of Scripture and even what we'll look at in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, that Paul wants to give us somewhat of a mountaintop view. A mountaintop views. I have I've been privileged to go to a number of places and I've climbed to great heights even at times and the views are wonderful. Um, even just uh, maybe perhaps two years ago, just in Wildwood, I was on, on a hike there and there's a certain time of the year and even day and you can see Catalina from there. I've been up to Whitney before, and it's amazing when you get up to 12,000 feet. I couldn't make it up. I think Whitney goes about 14,500. I couldn't make it up there because I didn't have the right equipment because of some recent snow. But it was amazing in what you can see from that mountaintop. But one thing that happens, though, especially those that are in urban environments, um, because of dust and pollution and also Vapor, you can see about 25 miles. At sea level, the horizon is about three miles away. If you were to climb Mount Everest, 29,000 feet, you can see for about 230 miles. Imagine that, 230 miles away because you have a mountaintop view. Interestingly, if you look into the heavens, you can see the Andromeda galaxy with the naked eye. And that's about 2.25 million light years away. If you were to go to what is called the European Southern Observatory, and it's actually in Chile, and the reason it's in this area of Chile is because of high altitude, there are no clouds, and there's no light pollution. No light pollution whatsoever. And light pollution obscures the vision. Um... I remember once visiting one of actually our Grace Advanced Churches in Hill Rose, Colorado. And Hill Rose, Colorado is about that big. I'm not kidding you. You go into Hill Rose 
And if you are changing your radio station, you would have passed through um, the city. But one thing about Heroes, it's in the part of Colorado away from everything. And we went out one night and it is, you mean pitch dark. It is dark. And I looked into the heavens and I said, oh, yes, that's the Milky Way. I had not seen it like that. And I cannot tell you how many years. And I was even reminded, that's why they call it the Milky Way. It's sort of like spilled milk that's on the table. Amazing. No light pollution. No dust, if you will. I I could see something that I didn't see before, but it had been there the whole time, of course. And the Colossians, if you will, they had somewhat of an issue with their own light pollution. It was spiritual. You had false teachers in their midst that were telling them that they should look below and not to Christ alone. The Colossians were looking below. And how were they looking below? Well, they were looking to ceremony and they were looking to philosophy and they were looking to worldly knowledge and they were looking to human discipline, disciplining the body and beating the body into submission. And this is what you see in part. Just briefly glance to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These are just shadows. It's not the substance, and that belongs to Christ. Don't let anyone defraud you of your prize because you're delighting in self-abasement. That's that discipline that I spoke of, the worship of angels, the visions of these things. They're inflated, and, and it's because of their fleshly mind. And he goes on to say, some are saying in verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. So they're thinking more about the things that you should avoid and thinking that somehow that would be a sign of spirituality, a true spiritual discipline, but it really isn't. And notice verse 23. This is so important, verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure. Notice what he says. The appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of how much value? What does it say? How much value in regard to Fleshly indulgence, what does it say? None. No value whatsoever. So they had a problem. This in one sense was their light pollution, and it was obscuring their vision of Jesus Christ. And that's why even this evening, we need to remind ourselves to always and forever look to Christ if we're going to live a healthy Christian life. And the errors of Colossae, in one sense, may manifest themselves today. Say, for instance, it will manifest itself in moralism. And what is moralism? It is this virtuous living without a proper vision of God, and it's in a dependence on the grace of God. It is effort without spiritual empowerment. That's moralism. Then, of course, there is legalism. And it sees contrived restraints. Um, on the flesh that demand more than God's revelation, and they purport to be a sign of spirituality, but they aren't. They are simply man-made. Interesting account in Greek mythology. The Sirens, Odysseus, and Orpheus. And um, the Sirens were these creatures that 
had wonderful voices and just such melodious sounds that they could produce. And in Greek mythology, um, they were had this ability when sailors would go by, they would uh, begin to sing and the sailors would be so inquisitive that they would go to them and they would be snatched to their deaths. And the Odysseus, when they were passing by this region where the sirens, these sort of almost like they were women, partially some have depictions of them perhaps being women mixed with being perhaps like a mermaid and they were beautiful and they would allure the sailors and then they would be cast to their death. And Odysseus, when he came by, as they're sailing by this area, they begin to hear these beautiful voices and these melodious sounds. And the way that they dealt with it was they put wax in their ears. We just can't hear it. But another part of Greek mythology says that when Orpheus came by and his men What instead of putting wax in their ears, what Orpheus did, and he had a reputation of being this great musician and having great talent, sort of like Darren does here. He was on fire up here. Did you notice that? I'm thinking, why doesn't he just preach? I mean, (laughs) oh, I was getting worked up just watching him direct the choir. But Orpheus, as they're coming by, they hear these sirens again. These wonderful sounds are coming forth. But what did he do instead? They didn't put wax in their ears. He began to play and to sing. And so as they focus on his playing and his singing, the sound of these beautiful creatures were in one sense muted. And I thought about that little story in Greek mythology. And the world is not our friend. Do we agree with that? It is absolutely not that. And would you also agree that in the world, there are forever temptations that will want to pull us away from our commitment to the church and our commitment to the things of the Lord? Do we all agree with that? Now, either we can just stuff wax in our ears and pretend it's not there, or we can listen to something that's better. And just like they did with Orpheus, oh, what skill he has. What a voice he has. And they listened to him, and so the sounds of the beautiful sirens as they were going and going, they were really ignored. And this is how we have to live our Christian life. If we look to Christ and the things below and the things of the flesh and the things of the world are not appealing to us. Legalism is just putting wax in the ears. Moralism is putting wax in the ears. For the Colossians, ceremony is putting wax in the ears. Uh, Worldly knowledge is putting wax in the ears. Self-abasement is putting wax in the ears. You have to make a decision. There is something more melodious and attractive and beautiful, and that is Christ. You agree with that? It is always and forever Christ. What God offers is divine, and it is above. It is a true knowledge. It is forgiveness. It is freedom. It is grace. It is purpose. It is an eternal perspective. And if we look there, then we'll be properly motivated to live this Christian life. People need this motivation. Anything that's worth achieving, um, it's been achieved by people who are motivated. Now, I didn't say motivated properly. 
Because sometimes people may be motivated, but their motivations are not proper. They may be motivated by selfish ends. If, if I do this, uh, I'll have this drive, then I can achieve these things in life, and look what I'll have. As a matter of fact, I was in a conversation with um, a dear brother that works with Grace Advance, Stephen, who's here, and we were talking about um, people and how they achieve things in life, and at the end of these achievements, then they find themselves still dissatisfied. Why is it that a person would take their life and they still have everything? But because they have nothing, because if they don't have Christ, they have nothing at all. Do you agree with that? And so we must be motivated properly. And some of these people, they achieved great things, but they achieved it so that they might have the things of the world. Or they were motivated simply that they might have their stake in life. Or they were motivated by ill motives but we're motivated by looking to Christ. And if we can look to Christ, the church will be healthy. And if we can look to Christ, then we'll mature. And if we look to Christ, we can put off the things and the, the sort of in the language of Hebrews 12, we can put off the things that uh, encumber us and the sin that entangles us if we'll look to Christ. And then we will be that pillar. We will hold forth the truth and we will pay any price necessary to never compromise. Now, in this text ahead of us, my, there's so much to be said. When we look to Christ, we'll learn ways which we'll look at tomorrow, even how to overcome pride and anger and how do we control the tongue? And what about submission in marriage? And what about sacrifice in marriage? If we want to be a better husband, we say we look to Christ. If we want to be a better friend, we look to Christ. If we want to be an honest person, we look to Christ. If we want to be a reconciler, we then look to Christ. If we want to grow in humility, then we look to Christ. Now, in order for me to keep my promise, uh, let me propose this, that we focus on four powerful truths. There are four powerful truths concerning this call to the new life. And let me give them to you. Truth number one, we'll notice this in verse one. We need to first grasp the reality of your new life. Grasp it. And you'll hear this every time. Grasp it. Hold on to it. Don't let go of it. Strive for it. Seek it. Be passionate about it. And then second truth is this. Grasp the person of your new life. Grasp the person of your new life. We'll notice that in verse 1 of chapter 3 as well. And then third, grasp the direction of your new life. We'll note that in verse 1 and then verse 2. And then we'll notice in verses 3 and 4, grasp the rationale for your new life. So let's grasp the reality, the person, the direction, and then the rationale. Now, someone may say to ourselves, okay, great. I I surely want to grasp a new life. I want to live this new life. I want to live it with all of my might. And that's perhaps even one reason that you're here this evening saying to yourselves, let me come and hear what these men have to say from God's word so that my life can be more than what it presently is. Now, if a person never says that they want more of their present life than they have, they, they do not have the right perspective. They don't. 
let me ask it this way. Let me say it this way. How many of you are satisfied believing that there is nothing for you in your future growth in your Christian walk? You've arrived. Any, anyone in this room today that's arrived? Any arrivers? And I don't mean to this location. Any spiritual arrivers today? Uh, yes, Pastor Hargrove, I have achieved it all. Uh, I have all that I want to have of Jesus Christ. Although he is an infinitely wise, holy, gracious, and merciful being, I am totally full. No, not at all. I know there's no takers on that. Because we're all striving to want more of Christ, are we not? And so a question may come up. How do we look to Christ when we're still so sinful? How do we look to Christ when we still have eternal battles in our soul? How do we look to Christ when we still have the things of our past that are forever at times, it seems, looking over our shoulder? Allow me to answer you with one of the descriptions of Christ. Sufficient. Amen? He is sufficient, which means his sacrifice is sufficient to forgive you of everything. You know, worldwide, there are about 350,000 births per day. Imagine that, 350,000 little ones starting their new life. But what is unique to those 350,000, all of them need support. If not, they will die. Um, Joanne and I became uh, grandparents. Uh, It is now, like this last weekend, was six months ago. Wow, the day came. Uh, Grandparents. And, and we've seen little Jaden from the first pictures that they sent us. He was just seems like it was just about that big. That was it. I could just hold him in my hand. I know I have big hands, but still, I could just hold him in my hand. And now I see him and he's making sounds and he's learned how to scream. And that's their problem, not ours. <laughs> and this is wonderful. And I see him sitting up and and I, I'll do a FaceTime with him. I'm making these sounds, and he's looking at me, and he's interacting. But he's only gotten to that point because his parents take care of him. We should never forget that we're all children growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, are we not? And the moment we forget that, we are headed for a problem. This first point, grasp the reality of your new life. What does he say here? Therefore, you have been raised up with Christ. So first, we must grasp the reality of the new life. And what is that new life? We have been raised with Christ. The language here is is communicating association. I'm now in this great spiritual association with Christ. For everyone who has surrendered their life to Christ, something happened. We, We died to the old, and now we have been raised up with Christ, and we have to grasp the reality of this new life, and we have to grasp the reality of this secure position that we have with Christ. And what does it mean that we have been raised with him and and we are with Christ? It means that we are in union with him, and we have been joined with Christ now through his death and burial and his resurrection, his exalted status, and even his return Now I am with Christ. My life is radically changed. 
So Paul says, therefore, in view of this, understand that you've been raised with Christ. Why would you indeed then look to the things beneath when you have this exalted status with him and the sufficient Savior has brought you into union with him, not because of your philosophy or your knowledge or your efforts or self-abasement or ceremony. It was because of his sufficient death on the cross. Amen. So why would I look below? Everything is above. The implications of this are are quite serious. As a matter of fact, in Paul, we find this sense of with Christ 36 times in Paul. He likes to say this a lot. I want to remind you of your identification. And often when Paul does it, we might even say exclusively when Paul does it, he says, don't think this way, think this way, you're with Christ. Be motivated properly. And that should motivate us in our Christian life to look above because we say to ourselves, I no longer identify with this world. I identify with Christ. I would just open your Bible perhaps over this weekend or some other time into the future and just um, look up with Christ, in Christ. This is who we are. In the Old Testament, it would have been this idea of God with us. And of course, the great example of it being the Emmanuel, God is with us, but now we are with God. It's amazing in my Bible reading, I'm going through it and just love going through the the Bible in large portions. And so many times I see repeated, particularly in these Old Testament narratives, and the Lord was with them, and the Lord was with them, and the Lord was with them. And just reading another account of Jehoshaphat and this great battle that he has, and the odds are absolutely stacked against him, but yet the Lord was with him. And so in our spiritual lives, we need to be reminded that we are with Christ. We have now this great association with him. Here's the second great truth for us. Not only do we need to grasp the reality of this new life, we need to grasp the person of our new life the person of our new life. We are raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. So why look to Christ? Because he is that supreme example. Why look to Christ? Because Christ is preeminent. Why look to Christ? Because Christ is sufficient. Why look to Christ? Because he is a savior. Why look to Christ? Because he is a sovereign who is controlling all things in life. Therefore, in fact, if he is preeminent and if he is sufficient and if he is a savior and if he is sovereign, therefore he is superior. Superior to what? Well, in this context, he is superior to ceremony. He is superior to philosophy. He is superior to tradition. He is superior to self-effort and to worldly knowledge. So we look to Christ and we think to ourselves, who is Christ? We look to Christ, and I would say, look to Christ because Christ is beautiful. The scripture tells us, Psalm 27 and 4, that we should behold the beauty of God. And we might say then, behold the beauty of Christ. And what makes him beautiful, all the things that I just said, make him beautiful. And we think about a person being beautiful. We think about who they are. We think about their attributes. We think about uh, how they behave. And yes, the world first thinks about their looks but we all know that looks change, do they not? And they don't always change for the better. I looked at my picture in the um, 
in the brochure. I'm thinking, oh, my, I had hardly any grace. What's happened in seven and a half years? But internally, I want to believe that I've been, I'm being changed from glory to glory. And internally, I want to believe that I'm better than what I was. We look to Christ because he's glorious. We, he forgives. He's merciful. We look to Christ because he's compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. And I gave you a lot of words. And uh, the last four were strategic because you say, well, what do you mean by being strategic, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient? Look with me at verse 12. Where this is to give you a precursor to what we'll consider even tomorrow. Because notice what it says in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, chosen of God, yes, because we've been raised up with Christ. And we're raised with Christ because in the mind of God, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. And then he says, now you are holy and beloved, put on compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And that's why I chose even those five words to end that sort of barrage of thoughts about Christ. Because when we look to Christ, he manifests perfectly compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And so when Paul challenges the church at Colossae to put in those things, in one sense, what he's essentially saying is that put on these elements of Christ. Did we not see compassion in his life and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience in his life? Of course we did. I know you want to be like Christ. First Corinthians 11 tells us to be, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Ephesians 5 tells us that we can be imitators of God. Of course, Philippians 2 and 3, that now we have Christ as this humble example and we are to emulate him, take on the same attitude as Christ had. As I alluded to earlier, Hebrews chapter 12, we look to Christ, who is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. We look to Christ. This is a most intense emphasis that Paul has of Christ in Colossians. How do I know this? If you just look for it, you'll see it. And I think I have something to show it to you. In chapter 1, Christ is mentioned 24 times in 29 verses. He's trying to make a point, is he not? Christ, 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 Christ. Then in chapter 2, you see it mentioned 17 times in 23 verses. Then in chapters 3 and 4, it's in 13 times in 43 verses. Total, 54 times in 95 verses, he is saying Christ. Now, what's interesting, there is a a bit of a shift that takes place beginning in chapter 3, verse 5, and then through 418, 39 verses, and he only mentions Christ eight times. So what is he doing? I'll put it this way. He's sort of front-loading Christ. And that's why I'm saying tonight, look to Christ in the church. This is not just me as a preacher arbitrarily saying, oh, I think this would be a wonderful title. It's paying attention to what Paul is doing. There in chapter 1, think about it, 29 verses, 24 times Christ. Christ. 
Christ. He's our example. He's our Savior. He's the one that will give us the proper motivation. Paul's intention is obvious. It must be. Let me give you some examples of the pictures of Christ that are given throughout the book of Colossians. And I'll just read them to you. Chapter 1, verse 16, he is creator. Verse 17, he's a sustainer. Verse 18, he's a leader. Verse 20, he's the reconciler. Verse 28, he's the perfecter. Verse 29, he's the one that empowers. Chapter 2, verse 2, he's the revealer. Chapter 2, verse 10 and 13, he's the renewer. Chapter 2, verse 14, he's the redeemer. Chapter 2, verse 15, he's the ruler. Chapter 2, verse 17, he's the sustainer. Chapter 3, verse 1, we see here, he is sovereign. Chapter 3, verse 3, he's the one that is a secure. Chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, he's the indweller. Then chapter 3, 24 and 4, 3 and 12, he is the commissioner. In one sense, it begins, he is the creator. And at the end, as far as a title or how we should see Christ, he is the commissioner. And that only makes sense because he says now at the end, here's your commission. Go into the world, make sure that you behave yourselves properly towards those that are outsiders, is what he's saying in chapter 4. But it all begins, of course, you should pay attention to him because he's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the sovereign. He is your all in all. Pay attention to him. Um, Respect is incredibly important, isn't it? when it comes to adhering to what a person says. Um, growing up, you know, there's so many stories that come from life and living life, isn't there, that have to do with their spiritual life. And um, there have been times my wife has said, they aren't listening to me. That is my kids. And we love our kids, but there have been those moments. I don't know if your kids are like that. Perhaps yours were absolutely perfect. And they behaved as you always wanted them to in every example of life. Uh, we didn't have those sort of kids. And the reason we didn't have those sort of kids because they came from us. <laughs> and you don't have those sort of kids because they came from you. So let's straighten that out. Uh, but there have been moments when she was like, they aren't listening to me. And I, there was just a tendency that I could say, can you call them down? Like it was time for dinner. I, <laughs> some of this is funny, it really is. I'm, I'm, you know. Okay, uh, I'm just sitting there, and she's like, come down, come down. And they're just up there still doing their thing. She's, Carl, can you call them? And I'll do that. It's time for dinner. Get down here now. What do you think happened? They came down. They came down for dinner. They heard the voice of authority. They did. And not that mom didn't have it, but my voice this has at times something with it. go into the world I'm your creator imitate me I'm the sufficient one avoid the world I'm your sovereign die to self I'm your sufficient savior There's just something about that voice, isn't there? And we need to pay attention to it. 
See, we have to have the right motivations. We should also be this. We should be motivated by the position of Christ. I want you to see something. This idea of verse 1. It says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's important for us to notice. That is a place of authority. This is his position. There's a significance to understanding the right hand of God. And this is the only other reference outside of the Gospels, um, other than the Gospels, other than Revelation. That is the book of Revelation, where you see this idea of seated at the right hand of God. At the right hand of God in the Old Testament, um, Exodus 15, uh, it talks about it was a place of majestic power. Um, in Psalm 16, eternal pleasures were at the right hand of God. Psalm 17, it was a place of refuge at the right hand of God. Psalm 118, it was a place of, of valiancy and being exalted. So let me give you some ideas of why we need to understand seated at the right hand of God. Let me give you several. Number one, it is a place of acceptance. It's a place of acceptance. So look above to the right hand of God. Mark 16, 19 says, after he he spoke, he was taken up and sat down at the right hand of God. Acts 5, 31, God exalted him in his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 20, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We see this thought also in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says this, He offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and when he had done that, he sat down at the right hand of God. So him being at the right hand of God is communicating, it is now a place of acceptance. Well, wait a minute, what is the connection? What do you mean? I never saw the word acceptance in anything that you wrote. When he sat down at the right hand of God, it was, it was a statement of what? His sacrifice is what? Sufficient. And now I can be accepted because remember, I've been raised up what? With him. Now I'm accepted at his right hand. It is also a place of authority. Secondly, it's a place of authority. Hebrews 1 verse 3 and then 13 says this, He is the exact representation of his nature. He upholds the universe by his word. And then what does it tell us? He made purification of sins. And once he did that, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. First Peter 3.22. At the right hand of God, it's a place of authority above angels and powers, and they were all subjected to him. Why? Because he is that sovereign. It's a place of authority. Number three, it is this. It's a place of intercession. It's a place of intercession. Romans 8.34, the ESV reads this way. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What a wonderful truth. The intercessory... Um, ministry of Jesus Christ. And what does it do? It protects us from the false accusations of the enemy. And also, I would say, the lingering effects of our own sin. 
He is forever praying for us. Amen. And this is one reason that we will, in fact, see him face to face because he's interceding for us even this moment. I share something with you that's personal. Um, I was on a walk several months ago, and I felt pressures on me. Felt pressures. And I often go for these walks, and I'm listening to Scripture or something else, and I'm praying, and I felt these pressures on my li- in my life. And I'm not just talking about general pressures of ministry, um, that and other things as well. And I don't know if I'd ever done this before in my life. And I prayed to the Lord, but I asked him to pray for me. I'd never done it in my life. And I think I grasped the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. And I said this to him. I said, Lord Jesus Christ, will you pray for me? I know that he does it. He is forever interceding for the saints. Will you pray for me? It's good that we have others pray for one another. The scripture tells us pray for one another. But I so felt I need to go to the highest power possible. And normally I am praying to God for me. But I had to ask God to pray for me. What a wonderful Savior. And however that works in the mind of God, I felt relieved. Now, not in that moment. But within a short period of time, I felt relieved. And I thanked him. And I thanked him for praying for me. It's a place of intercession. And you need to look to Christ. It's also a place of blessing. Look with me at Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Acts 2 and verse 33. Verse 32, let's look there because we've seen this language already in Colossians 3. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we all are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. Exalted. It's a place of blessing. And this blessing has been poured off, poured onto the church at Pentecost, and it's being poured into the church now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Consider this. Go back to Colossians, Colossians 3. Here, I know I jumped ahead to seated at the right hand of God, but notice what else he says. Keep seeking the things above. This is the direction of your life. You need to grasp, grasp the direction of your life. This is our third point. Grass, a third truth, grass, the direction of your life. Keep seeking the things above. 
And just briefly, what does it mean to seek? A, a familiar word. We, we know it. Perhaps we even learned verses that had the word seek in it before we even came to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we know something like, seek ye first the kingdom of God. We see throughout scripture, if you will but seek my face, you will hear from heaven. And if you would seek me, I will answer you. But very interesting in this command, just different ways that it's translated are, are different um, lexicons and how they translated are different scholars and how they would see the word seek. Let me give some of them to you to seek, to set one's heart on, to seek, to set one's sights on, to seek, to try to obtain, to desire to possess, to aspire to, to constantly be wanting. And I like that last thought, to constantly be wanting. And this is why we have to look to Christ. And if we look to Christ, we realize that there is always more that I can want and should desire from Christ. Do you agree with that? We can never be satisfied with Christ. And this is why Paul would say that I might know him in the fellowship of his suffering, in the power of his resurrection. Always trying to know. How many of you are married here this this evening? How many married people are here? Okay, be proud of it. Um, question. Anyone married over 30 years? Anyone married over 30 years? Oh, praise the Lord. Any 40 year? Amen. How about 50? Can we do we have a 50? In the back there, 50 years. Married 50 years. All right, amen. 50 years, one day. Think about that. And I would say to those married, you have learned things about your spouse in life, have you not? Did you say, okay, we got through engagement, we know each other perfectly, all set for the rest of our lives. Is that true? No, it is not. You cannot say amen to that, can you? (laughs) So wait a minute now. (laughs) I saw a couple of heads, amen to that. (laughs) We have to have a little counseling session here. All right. We learn one another, do we not? We learn things that we like. We learn habits, the good and the bad. We learn things. Oh, boy, I didn't know you were like that. Okay. Now I know. There are tendencies that they have. You learn things, the favorite this or the favorite that, but you're still growing in the knowledge of that person, are you not? And you can say, well, we're at that stage where we can finish each other's sentences. And that does happen. There are times that even Joanna and I are 28 years and we're thinking the same way. And sometimes we'll think, here's a situation. What are your thoughts? Here are my thoughts. These are your thoughts. Hey, we're on the same page because we've gotten to know one another. But there's still things we're discovering about one another. Would you agree with that? And here's why. Because sometimes life brings you into a situation you've never faced before. And now how do we deal with this? I mean, here it is, parents. Now they have a child that's gone astray. We've never dealt with that before. This child comes home and they bring us news that they are not thinking that they're a boy or a girl anymore. We've never been there before. I've lost my job after 30 years. We never crossed these waters before. Our spouse comes home. The news from the doctor is not good. 
These are new waters. And you'll get to learn more about that person in that situation. Do you agree with that? Now, there may be a core where you can say, I know how I think they'll respond. And I'm, I'm sure they'll respond this way, but it's still new waters. Imagine that with finite beings that we're still learning after 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years. How much more is there to learn from an infinite God? Amen? And we should cherish the opportunity to learn from him. As it says, to constantly, to be constantly wanting. Do you constantly want from God? So, we learn these things. We seek him. We set our mind on him, not on the things that are below. Let's move ahead. Our fourth truth, grasp the rationale for your new life. Grasp the rationale for it. Notice verses three and four. He's already told us, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And here he goes from saying in verse two, seek the things above. Here, set your mind on. And the language here is more intense. And he's saying, keep thinking about the things above. Now that you've oriented yourself properly, that you will be a seeker of, that you constantly want, now you need to set your mind on these things. And then this leads us to this fourth truth, grasp the rationale for your new life. And it's simply put off four. Four. Four, what's the rationale? You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So if we're going to grasp this new life, now the rationale for this new life, we need to understand certain things. And at first, it is this. Your life's power, your old life's power is gone. He says, you have died. We need to grasp the implications of that death. What does that mean? Colossians 2, 12 and 13, and, and also verse 20 tells us this, you have died with Christ. Romans 6 tells us what? We have died to sin. Colossians, Colossians 2, Romans 7 tells us we have died to the law. And notice Colossians 2, 20, turn back there with me. So we have died with Christ, we have died to sin, we have died to the law. Colossians 2, 20 says this, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? We've died to the world. We no longer follow its system. I'm grasping this new life. And then he says here, not only do I realize that my old life's power is gone, I have died, and now I have life in Christ, but it also is this, there's a promise of a new secure life. What do I mean by that? Notice verse 3. Go back to Colossians 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Hidden with Christ. It's simply another way of saying it is in fact secure. You remember what Christ from the Gospels, um, the Father has given many into his hands. And if they're in his hands and they're in the Father's hands, can anyone snatch us out of those hands? No. And this is why I'm saying, do you grasp this new life? Hold on to it because Christ has grasped you. 
This is the language even of Philippians 3, is it not? Paul says, what I'm striving, I'm looking to the future, and I'm trying to lay hold of that which I have been laid hold of. I'm so glad that God has my life, aren't you? Oh, my. Ceremony and human knowledge and self-abasement. If that's what I'm, if that was required to hold on to the new life, where would you be? I cannot grasp, I cannot hold on to this new life with those things. Not at all. I was pulled from that into Christ. He has you in his hand. And we, what a beautiful song. We sang it earlier, did we not? Beautiful song. He will do what? Hold me fast. Hold me fast. Until the end, he will hold you fast. Amen. He says here, it's hidden with Christ. So how is it hidden with Christ? Because it's, it says it's with Christ. It's also because of his riches. Go back with me to Colossians chapter 2. Our new life is secure in relation to Christ. It's with Christ. And why is it with Christ? And why is it secure? Said another way, because of his riches, not our own. We were paupers. We were poor. We were miserable. We were sinners. We were helpless. We were enemies of God. But now it is because of his riches. Notice Colossians 2, 3. The language of hidden comes up again. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. True knowledge is in Christ, not in the world. True wisdom is in Christ, not in the world. And they're hidden in him. Does that mean they're away from us? Uh, We have to strive to discover this wisdom. That's what some of the false teachers had taught. That's why you need to have these visions or a recognized ceremony or harshly treat your body. Then these things can be opened up to you. No, what Paul is saying, they are open to you because you're in Christ. As kids, we used to love playing hide and go seek. I mean, it was wonderful. And, um, and what would happen though is that sometimes as you go, you know, someone is counting to 10 on the cheap one. They're counting down nine, eight, seven. You find a spot. And especially as a small kid, there were times when you go to your spot and somebody else would come there as well. What are you doing? This is my spot. You have to go somewhere else. Both of us can't be in here together. And I'm like, no, we can both fit. It's a good hiding place. We're both here together. They won't discover us. And at times it worked. You crammed in there and you hear the person outside and they're looking for you and they can't find you. You're hidden from them. Perhaps a juvenile illustration, but here's the point. I'm with Christ. I'm in the same spot as Christ. My treasures are with Christ. And I'm there with him. I've been raised with him. I'm in him. And no one can take that spot away from me. Amen? No one at all. Your life is secure because of relationship to God. Notice it says, if we go back to Colossians chapter 3, it says what? Hidden with Christ in God. In God. In God. Let me come to a final thought. 
it's communicating here in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. It will come about. It is secure. Notice he says, who is your life? It's simply saying he's not a portion of your life. He's not a segment of your life. He represents the totality of your life. He is the source of your life, the meaning of your life. He is your identity, and now even it is your destiny because your life will be finally revealed. But going back to the throne of God, I want to end there. Seated at the right hand of God. I've given you four views of this seated at the right hand of God. Let me give you a fifth. That's never happened before. (laughs) It normally is on silence, but it's telling me I've gone 55 minutes. So give me about three more. Is that all right? It's a place of vindication. Go with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts 7. Acts 7. A place of vindication. I'm at the right hand of God, so I look to Christ in the church. That's going to properly motivate me to live for the Lord. The question comes back to motivation. What is the motivation? We look at the life of Stephen, and I want to extract some truths from this account. We know what has happened. Stephen has preached, and those men and religious leaders have covered their ears. They don't want to hear the truth of God's word. And what will they do? Notice verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But... Contrast, notice it, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently. Where did he gaze? Where did he gaze? Someone say it. Into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he is full of the Spirit. He gazes. He sees the glory of God. There's Jesus standing. Now, there is an implication of Jesus standing. All the other references that I gave you before, as we went to Hebrews and we looked at the book of Acts, it was sit at the right hand, sit at the right hand, sit at the right hand, which is proper because now Jesus has done his work. He has come. He has taught. He has been castigated. He has been brutalized. He has been crucified. Now he is raised from the dead. He says, now sit down. Sit down. Why? Because your work is sufficient. Rest. Rest. But here, notice he's standing. Standing. Interesting enough, in verse 56, I'm going to come back to this. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. But they cried out with a loud voice. Interesting enough, instead of thinking, he sees the Son of Man standing? Perhaps we should hear this man. Perhaps there's a word of knowledge for us, but they don't. They charge towards him instead. The son of man standing. What a beautiful picture. They covered up their ears. They cried out. Verse 58, they stoned him. They take their clothes in their place at the feet of Saul, who we know would become Paul. Verse 59, he says, what? 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I've been raised with you. His life is hidden with him. And he cried out in verse 16, do not hold this against them. Beautiful picture, though, standing at the right hand of God. Why standing? As I thought about this and standing, I think there are two ways to perhaps consider it. Here he is standing at the right hand of God, a picture of receiving, almost standing up to receive. And perhaps it's also at the same time a picture of judgment. As I receive you, I am also pronouncing judgment on those who are taking your life. And for him, his life is over. But it's really beginning, isn't it? Why? Because he's been raised with Christ. His life is hidden with Christ and God. And he experiences what we will taste in the future. Christ is his life. He did not compromise one iota from his message. And surely Stephen knew that he could have, he could have walked away, but he would have walked away a coward, a betrayer of Christ. He looked above, and that was his motivation because he lived above because of Christ. And for us this evening and tomorrow as you hear Messages to challenge your soul as well. Will you look to Christ, who is your life? Amen. Father, we thank you for your mercies you give us, the grace that is new every day. Give us grace to look above. Amen.